liberty bonds is, is now the scientist is not a human. Welcome to Science for Progress. We believe that empirical evidence and scientific understanding are essential to mastering the challenges of the 21st century. To advocate for the sciences and their roles in society, we are building an online community and organize live events in Portugal, where we are based. I am Uptinkur, host for this episode of the podcast. Today I welcome the founder and initiator of Science for Progress, Dennis Eckmeyer. Hello, Dennis. Hello. How are you feeling today? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, feeling, I'm feeling good, thank you. So it's, it's very interesting because the first episode that we had, you were the host and you were interviewing me. And I think it's interesting to have the inverse happen because we know, uh, we know what Science for Progress is about, what we plan to do, and we want some more background about what motivated you to go create Science for Progress. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm a scientist myself. And I first studied biology and then did my PhD in neuroscience. Then I did a postdoc, my first postdoc at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory mm-hmm. in New York uh, State. New York State. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Manhattan, it's sadly. It's not Manhattan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then from there I moved to uh, the Champollion Foundation here in, in Lisbon to continue with my postdoctoral research. So you started your career... From university, like you said, in Germany, right? Right. And then you went to to the to the states, and then you came back to Europe, and then you stayed in Portugal. Exactly. What brought you to Portugal, essentially? So there is a tight connection between Cold Spring Harbor, the place I've been at before, mm-hmm. and the Champollion Foundation. Several people who worked here and founded the research part of the Champollion Foundation were previously at Cosping Harbor Laboratory. For example, the director, Zach Maynan, was previously oh. at Cosping Harbor Laboratory. So they came to Cosping Harbor and they give talks. So I realized, oh, there's an interesting new uh, institution in, in Europe. And I wanted to go back to Europe anyways. So I looked further into it. And I really enjoyed the re- kind of research, the research approach that they mm-hmm. take here. Uh, studying mm-hmm. the neural basics of behavior. So you're working at the Neural Circuits and Behavior Lab at right. the Chappelle Animal Foundation. As you said, you want to find relations between animal behavior and the neural circuits embedded in the brain. Right. Can you tell us more about uh, more specifics about what exactly you're doing as a project in the lab? We're in the same lab. So yes. everybody, everybody who heard the first episode will know that uh, Ugo is working on the cerebellum. Uh, the part of the brain that we think is involved in locomotion ad- adaptation. Mm-hmm. So whenever there's something a little bit different with um, the surrounding or the, the underground or whatever, then the cerebellum learns the difference and adapts the locomotion pattern to exactly. this new mm-hmm. uh, situation. And the cerebellum is divided in two main regions. The one is called cortex, but it's not the neocortex that everybody thinks of when Mm -hmm. we talk about mammals. It's the cortex of the cerebellum. And below, there is a group of several nuclei. A nucleus is a bunch of neurons, basically. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that everything that comes out of the cerebellum 
goes through these nuclei. So what I'm interested in is if you manipulate the information that goes into the, these nuclei, what happens to the locomotion pattern? Mm -hmm. So I'm not directly working on adaptation, mm -hmm. but I'm working on what the specific function of these nuclei is, how they transfer their inputs into a change in locomotion. Uh, that's, that's extremely interesting. Uh, and you're finishing your postdoc later this year. Overall, um, I must say it wasn't so successful, the, the two postdocs, uh, postdoctoral fellowships that I've been doing. The, the, the currency to get a better job, uh, like a professorship or a PI position is, uh, papers. So you, you publish articles in scientific journals mm -hmm. or you get grants. I've chosen very hard problems <laughs> that needed a lot of work. So yeah. there, there was a lot of time where I wasn't getting results because I had to do preparations. And then I had decided to leave the U.S. instead of, you know, staying there and, and continuing with my work there. I came to Lisbon and changed the project and I had to start up again. Yeah. And that is always a loss of time. Yeah, of course. So now after... Seven years as a postdoc, uh, I don't have a lot of things on my CV that I can use to apply for a PI position or a professorship. And at the same time, the postdoc position is not the best of positions you could think of. It's not a contract, like you're not a staff, you're uh, hired as a trainee, mm -hmm. which gives you very little rights and... In Portugal, you don't pay taxes. It's not just beneficial. <laughs> There's, uh, there are a lot of things that there are downsides to being a postdoc and it's worse in other places than here. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's not, it's not the best <laughs> job you wish for, especially not for long term because it's not meant to be for long term, right? It's meant to be a transition where you, you get some, in, some more experience and then you move on. Mm -hmm. So what I plan to do, instead of trying for yet a couple of years to get uh, grants and uh, papers out, is to first take a year off completely. Okay. Uh, I'm in the lucky position that I can afford a year in Portugal. And um, it's basically what other people do after high school or after college. They take a year off and that's what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And the plan is uh, to basically live like a Renaissance person. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I always like to do many different things. Mm -hmm. So science is not the only passion that I have. I'm also interested in media. I'm also interested in art, graphics, design, music, uh, writing. Mm -hmm. So um, while as a neuroscientist, I could make use of a lot of skills, uh, there are still things that I can't do uh, or that, that are not used as a neuroscientist. And I want to, to explore that a bit. And uh, that I want to do with Science for Progress, in, in fact. So for the next couple of months or a couple of years, we'll say, you're trying to back down a little bit from this, from working in science directly and trying mm -hmm. to help the science community in a way 
um, for example, with Science for Progress, for this podcast, with blog entries and everything, right. and of course, with the live events. You started with March for Science, and then you wanted to continue that work for Science for Progress. How did this evolve to a point that you felt comfortable with sharing with the general public? Mm -hmm. So, uh, Science for Progress is work in progress. <laughs> I, had to, I had to make it. Um, so, yeah, um, a year ago, pretty much exactly, maybe 13 months ago, <laughs> that was in February 2017, there was the idea of the Science March coming up, and I heard about it from Twitter. Mm -hmm. By the way, Twitter is a great place to meet scientists. There are a lot of scientists online on Twitter and you can always talk to them. So I was involved for several years in discussions about topics that were also addressed by the Science March, like uh, how certain groups uh, and ideologues have an interest, be it profit or be it power or mm -hmm. whatever, ideology, religion, I don't know, that go against the scientific results. Mm -hmm. So there's empirical evidence that clearly shows how things are or that are the best way that we know how things are. And they straight up say this is not true. They say the scientists are bought. They say we don't have to listen to the evidence and so on. Then Trump won the election in the United States and in the, and I'm connected to a lot of people in the United States because I lived there. And, uh, then this science march, first the march, the, the women's march and then the science march, uh, were, uh, created. And the Science March really quickly became an international thing because I think a lot of things are decided in politics that go against evidence. I think that really needs to be conveyed, mm -hmm. that, that there is a problem yeah. there. And uh, also, I mean, different countries had different reasons. I guess in Portugal, a big problem would be the salaries of uh, researchers. Mm -hmm and the funding availability, and the kind of contracts, right? Yes, there, there was yes. another uh, thing lately against Bolsas as the... As the main source of source funding, yeah. For, for postdocs and other people in academia. So I thought immediately, oh, this would be great to have it here. And we, uh, I'm part of the R uh, event planning mm -hmm. A thing that, which is an outreach of the Champollimot Foundation yeah. run by postdocs and grad students. And they had a group meeting and I was part of that and I wanted to bring it up, but then somebody. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> brought it up Eric, before you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric brought it up first, mm -hmm. uh, that we should have the science march. So I was on board immediately, yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, I was mostly doing social media presence, um, mostly Twitter, of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. Apparently, I'm a professional Twitter person now. <laughs> <laughs> but I also like to make uh, graphics design, so I made a couple of memes and things like that and shared a lot of stuff. And then the time was really intense. Um, there were a couple of people from the Champollion Mode Foundation and some from other uh, institutions. We, we came together every week and we really had to to figure out how to do this. Mm -hmm. So we had a website and 
uh, and all of this in six weeks we had to, to get six weeks yeah we had to get this running because uh, we were late there were already articles in the news why is there no science march in Portugal mm, yeah. <laughs> even before we came together the first time <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you had a few weeks to organize an event where supposedly all the scientific community here in Portugal was participate in a way that was the hope yes that, is the hope, that yeah. was the hope so uh, what happened so uh, what happened was we had the march it was a good march mm -hmm. i don't want to diminish it it there could have been more people mm -hmm. um there there were news across the the world of countries where astonishingly large numbers showed up to these kind of to to these marches and in portugal it was 500 people 500 people, yeah. Yes, which is not bad, but in comparison, it, mm -hmm. it was a little bit, uh, it was few. But, I mean, you have to see that also there were other marches before and after. Uh, there was a climate march the week after. There mm -hmm. was, I think, also a feminist. It wasn't quite the women's march, but something related, related had to. been happening just before. And then there, it was close to the 25th of April. Oh, yeah, the Independence Day here in Portugal. Yeah. Right. And uh, Easter had been the week before. So is it a lot of events in just a it, couple of weeks? Yes. So, yeah, of course, that would influence it. Exactly. Bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but no, uh, it, it was it was lovely to see the people who came and uh, they had interesting signs. And, Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And, and that's exactly why we do this type of pro projects, right? To exactly. Yeah. 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 The community. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not really mad or something no, course, that there's there's few. I'm not really complaining. Uh, it's just uh, just uh, an observation that I made. Anyways, so uh, after that we had a Festa de Ciencia, mm -hmm. which is a science fair. Yeah. And um, uh, we had different groups. Even international groups, there was a group from Switzerland that is... So the people work at CERN, but they're not affiliated directly with CERN. Mm -hmm. Just like we too are Sci for Progress, but we're not affiliated with Champollimode, although we work at Champollimode yes, right now. Yes. Uh, it was the same kind of thing, so we weren't allowed to write CERN on the poster, um, but that's where they came from. So that, that went very well, Yeah. Um, I thought. I, I liked it. And there were groups involved like uh, Concept, uh, Skeptics mm -hmm. uh, Organization, Gulbenkian was Gulbenkian, involved. Yeah. I imagine IMM, Institute of yeah. Medicine. Yeah, there, there were a couple of groups. I don't remember the program. Yeah, of course. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things to, to, to yeah. take into mind, yeah. Right. I also was not involved in, in creating that, that part. I didn't do the festa. I just uh, ran around, took a couple of pictures. And actually, I have the whole march on video. Ah, yeah. that's nice. My shoulders hurt a lot after <laughs> that. Because I, first I, I was video recording the whole march with my phone. Yeah. But then also the whole half hour talks or, or speeches. Oh, you also recorded that. I recorded that. I was standing there like, no, don't, trying not to move too much. And oh, so, <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was, it was hot and fun. <laughs> so the march finished and you felt accomplished with your results. Yes. It could have been better, but of course. It can always be. It can always be. Right. Uh, so what led you from that point to the point where we are right now? So, I immediately thought 
that there should be something happening after. Mm -hmm. So a protest is fine, but if there's nothing following, then it's just a day and nobody cares, mm -hmm. right? So I wanted to have something that comes out of this that is more permanent than a march. Other groups are making an, a different march this year. Or actually, I guess it's the same march, but yeah. they are repeating the march this year. And I thought that's that's maybe not what I want. Mm -hmm. Maybe I get more people involved if I do something different. So I came up with Science for Progress instead. And uh, the the goal of Science for Progress right now at the beginning is first to get in contact with all these different groups. There are a lot of uh, science communication groups mm -hmm. in Portugal. And to get them to talk to us on the podcast, for example... Or on our Twitter Rokur account. <laughs> <laughs> so that we can come together and then maybe do something together. Uh, something bigger. Like a larger science convention. Um, I think we're still talking about it on the website. Mm -hmm. um, the organization has been a little bit slow on that part. But the, the, main, the main goal right now for us, I think, is to get in contact, to talk and see what we can do. Before we move on to part two of this episode, I have a short announcement. Science for Progress is just getting started. We are always looking for motivated new members. Do you feel that too many decisions are crucial to our future and are being delayed by groups who deny the evidence? Let us make a difference together. If you want to get into, into contact with us or just stay up to date with our activities, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under at Progress. Our website is scienceforprogress.eu. I also want to point you to our Twitter rotating curation account. Every week we invite another guest curator to tweet about the sciences and their intersections with society and governance. If you are on Twitter and want to learn something new every week, follow at SFPROCUR. That is at SFPROCUR. Now, let's listen to part two of our conversation where we talk about a topic chosen by our guests. We should talk about what I think the problem with the image of science for the population is. Clearly, I am deep in the ivory tower. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way of saying it. Yeah. I, have, I have very little experience, actually, uh, from, from the outside, the outside view on science. Uh, what I do have experience with is conversations on Twitter with people who are not scientists, and I get a little bit of an insight of what could be a typical misconception about science and how it works, and how evidence works, how the scientific method works, what scientists are, And how they are. It is my impression that the image of the scientist is not necessarily a human one. Oh. In the sense that when people think about scientists, it's often not... They don't think about them as emotional beings. They no. think about okay. them as very rational people, sometimes even robotic. And uh, this is this is not the case. In, in, a sort, in a sense, that's sad that it's not the case. Like, yeah. <laughs> which, no, this is, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so Because the, the reason. Because sometimes emotions yeah, affect so, your work. 
Yes, exactly. Um, but, but this is more like an internal academia of course, problem. Yeah. Of course, if you talk to people, you, you are, you should be a human being, right? Of always, <laughs> always. That's essential for communication. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, we're not seen as people who are good at communicating. Mm -hmm. We're not necessarily seen as people who put emotion in their work. Which is really the opposite of true. Completely agree. Yeah. You can go down the whole conspiracy theory part where basically every scientist is bought by somebody. Uh, <laughs> as, as a biologist in neuroscience, I, who, who knows about cancer research too, and who knows something about immunology, immunology and, uh, understands climate papers. I should be on so many lists to get money. <laughs> to to not talk about it yeah. <laughs> or to to push a certain agenda no i mean uh, this is ob obviously nonsense um i think part of why this notion that you just have to bribe a couple of of scientists and then you you can do this big conspiracy theory thing mm -hmm. um how how this can even maintain itself for so long is because there is a problem in the way we convey the scientific process so and, and this is this is really a, a problem of science communication and i'm saying not of science communicators because it's a really hard problem it's it's a it's a problem of talking about a thing and you want to make people listen and It is well known that you need to do storytelling. Otherwise, people won't retain what they, what they read. They, they won't like to read it if it's yes. not, if it doesn't follow a story, if it doesn't have some emotion in it. It has, to, it has to have some elements to gain their interest. Right. Yes. Now, on the other hand, real science is a very slow process. It makes very small steps. And thousands of people are involved in every step. What happens is that the storytelling focuses on a few people who maybe had the, the, the final paper yeah. or the final result that turned decades of research into something interesting. But without these decades of research of hundreds of other people that they papers. cite, I mean, they cite their work, right? Yeah. Where they write the paper that is the breakthrough um, point, basically. And they cite a lot of people. And the people they cite, cite a lot of people in their articles. The message to the population is basically that we have these heroes in science that are geniuses. And then produce something unexpected. Yes. That's the idea that people have about scientists, that we are, we have a bunch of people that are extremely intelligent, extremely, that achieve these levels that you talked about. And they think, oh, that's basically what a scientist is. Right. And I don't connect with them as, right. as much. That's why it's very delicate how you should approach uh, communicating about your work. But the reality is that it's the work of a whole community. Yes. It's very slow and it makes very little steps. And at the end, there is something surprising and great. Actually, there's, there's surprises and something awesome mm -hmm. at every step. Yeah. It's just that the detail is so 
so small that most people wouldn't care and they don't have to care. I mean, that's our job to yes, care uh, about these exactly. kind of things until we get to the point where there's enough information that you can put together and then create something like a cure or like a new technology. Yes, I, I think people miss those intermediate steps between right. starting a project and having that breakthrough. Exactly. Because they think that's a span of a couple of years and right. as you say, it could be decades. Yes. And several lifetimes of several, exactly. several academics. academics and other uh, people, for example, in programming, people in related to technology that right. don't get as much attention as, for example, these investigators right. are having. So essentially... In communicating science, at least in my opinion, the people should guess, should, should get the gist of what you're talking about. Right. And they start to lose focus when you start putting more of these elements in between. Exactly. So, so this is, this is the dilemma mm -hmm. I see in yes. uh, science communication that you need to leave things out and you need to simplify certain mm -hmm. things. And sometimes, you even tend to overstate certain promises. Yes. Uh, which is a big problem in science journalism uh, that a lot of scientists feel like their what they say about their work or other people's work is taken out of context and overblown. And then so a lot of scientists either don't talk to the press anymore, which is sad. Which is sad, yes. Others ask the journalist to give them a copy of the finished article just to make sure the things that they said are represented correctly yeah. mm -hmm. in the right context. But then journalists, maybe not without reason, say, no, you cannot do this because that would be controlling the free media, the free press. So yeah, it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing. It is. However, this is this is being addressed and there has been a study. Apparently, a lot of these overstating and overly advertisement kind of things yes. already happen in the press uh, editorial rooms at the institute where the science was conducted. Oh, so okay. they create a press release about the science that of one of their researchers and that is overstated and then it's just taken and copied rightfully now some people point back at us Same, because yeah. supposedly we were talking to those press release people but i can assure you in a lot of times there is not much more talking between the press release editorial in your institution and you as with any journalist. In many cases, from the researcher's perspective, there's really no difference if you talk about your own press release editorial team in your own institution mm -hmm. or somebody at a different, uh, at a newspaper or something. Yeah. So that's, that's the other problem, I think, talking about um, how science is communicated. Yes. And the third thing is, of course, um, popular TV drama series. If you have the Hulk, Bruce Banner would say that he had had seven PhDs. That is ridiculous. <laughs> Either most of them are honorary and he didn't do anything for them, yeah. which is 
not really relatable given his background story mm-hmm. as a um, as a researcher who I think he was doing private research. Yes. And then he had this accident and turns into a monster. I don't think he got any honorary <laughs> PhDs. But then PhDs is incredible. Right. And it's also your the end of your career. If you spend your life doing one PhD after the other. I mean, a PhD is like five to six years in Europe. And I think two years more on average in the US because mm-hmm. they start as bachelors and not as masters. Okay. Spending all that time on PhDs would be complete waste. Yeah. Also, you don't get paid very well as a PhD student. It's a uh, it, Iron Man. He has a fabulous quote that I always always laugh at. That he said that he learned quantum mechanics in a night. I mean, these are super people, right? Yeah, you cannot exactly. forget that. Of it's also, it's but even for super people, it would be a ridiculous waste of time to get seven PhDs. Exactly. And then um, that reminded me, so uh, Jenna Simmons, also a Marvel character, mm-hmm. she's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. She's a scientist there. They only say she's a biochemist, but she supposedly had two PhDs when she was 17. So yeah, these, these characters. characters represent us. So I'm a big fan of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Not just superhero stuff, but actual science fiction. And... This is because often it really deals with a dilemma, with an ethical dilemma that has to do with science and scientific progress and with technological progress. Exactly. So the first science fiction novel was Frankenstein's Monster, and it already deals with uh, an ethical problem. At the time, it was new to know that electricity exists Mm -hmm. and... How, having kind of a grasp of how it works and that you can use electricity to make, make muscles twitch. Mm-hmm. So it was news back then that you can make dead things move if you put electricity in it. So the author made a character who stitched together corpses and then hit them with lightning. Exactly. So the character becomes alive. Mm-hmm. And that in, in itself is an ethical problem, right? Um, creating life. This problem is following us. Now we have synthetic biology where people can make a sequence of DNA and put it into a, an, an empty cell, and then this cell will be a living being. Mm-hmm. But you created the DNA sequence yourself. Yeah. So this is basically creating life. What does that mean? There are a lot of questions about this. And this is why I like science fiction. Good science fiction does that. It talks about technological progress and scientific progress and asks the ethical questions or the societal questions. What do we do with this new knowledge? Yeah. With these new abilities for humanity. Mm-hmm. The, the problem again is here that there's always a scientist who fucks up. <laughs> there's always, he's, or he's the bad guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do crazy things. And of course, this is scary. And, but, but it's really, you can't forget that it's fiction, right? But one thing that I think about these science fiction movies is that their goal, first of all, is not to communicate science. 
Right, but they do in but a way. They do in a way, and sometimes, of course, that is taken out of context. Of course, mm-hmm. and people exaggerate it, and mm-hmm. they tweak at it to exaggerate the point. Right. That, for example, um, implanting a tracker in your children and making you see what they see at all times and alarm you what they're uh, where they are and what they're doing. Well, that's not the scientist's fault in this case. Yeah. <laughs> But you can see that they exaggerate to a point that makes it entertaining. Yeah, they they put it. No, I I don't. Well, entertaining, yes. the The thing is that you cannot see science fiction as a report of science, Mm -hmm. but for the people, it's what they mostly see about science Mm -hmm. and science uh, scientists. Of course, they understand that it's not real, right? Yeah. But they don't know what the reality is. Yeah. So their image is always influenced by these kind of things. And with this, we end today's episode. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and are taking a new thought with you. If you want to hear more from us, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under at Progress and check our website, scienceforprogress.eu. The rotating curation account is at sfprocur. Is at S-F-P-R-O-C-U-R. If you have any suggestions of topics that you want us to discuss, please send us an email or contact us through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. 